Amen. Take your Bibles. Join me in the book of Hebrews this morning, the book of Hebrews. So good to see you with us today. Um, in just a couple of weeks, we are going to be um, celebrating one of the uh, ordinances of the church. We're going to be baptizing those who are ready to take that next step. Um, one thing we consistently talk about is our next steps. And a great way to communicate when you're ready to take some of those steps, uh, we are always welcoming a, a conversation, um, but a great way to begin that conversation is through our Connect card. And so, as Bob mentioned, you can either scan that QR code, um, depending on which generation you are, right? Because uh, Bob would rather fill out a card, and I would rather scan a code. And so, uh, very different, obviously, um, but you can do either or, whatever's convenient for you. They all go to the same place, and so you can take care of that. We would love to get a record of your visit. We would love to have that conversation with you. When we talk about baptism, we look biblically at baptism. We find that baptism comes following our salvation. Once we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then uh, we see all over the New Testament, they were saved, they put their faith in Jesus, and then they were baptized. They put their faith in Jesus, then they were baptized. And so uh, we're looking forward to celebrating with those who have put their faith in Jesus and are ready to take that step of baptism in just a couple of weeks. And so ecstatic to do that with those. And if that's you, if you're considering baptism. Maybe you don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You want to have that conversation. Maybe you were baptized as a child before you had an understanding of the things that Jesus taught and what it meant to be a follower of him. We would love to have a conversation with you from the Bible and talk to you about what baptism could look like for you. And so we're excited about that here in just a couple of weeks. For today, we're in the book of Hebrews. A few weeks ago, we began studying in Hebrews chapter number one. We spent a couple of weeks in chapter number one introducing the book and then jumped into chapter number two as we looked at how Jesus is a better champion, he's a better priest, he's a better king, he's a better brother. And then last week, um, Jacob Revels brought our message from Hebrews chapter number three, comparing Jesus to Moses and looking at ways that Jesus is superior to or better than Moses, one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. Well, today, as we jump into chapter number four, uh, this is a message that I, I'm going to say it this way. I believe this is a simple message, relatively simple, okay? But it's a difficult one for us to apply, which is why I've given it a very simple title that we're not always good at bringing into our own life. This week from Hebrews chapter 4, I want to look at the word rest. Rest. Now, um, before you scream hypocrite, I will admit to everyone I am probably the worst person to address this topic. Um, because I, if you ask my wife, I'm not good at resting. I am not good at sitting still. Anyone else just not good at sitting still? There's always another thing to do. There's always something else on your list. You always have to be doing something. Uh, in high school, I, I worked. I played two sports. Uh, I was involved heavily in my church. In college, I worked a full-time job. I played intramural sports. I had a full-time class load. I taught a Sunday school class. Uh, I worked on, I produced videos just for fun in the free time that I didn't have, plus whatever time was left for a social life, right? Um, and then the only thing, as I got older, the, I learned that the only thing, the only people busier than a single student was someone who was not single and not a student, right? Um, because you think you're busy, and then you get married, and then you have kids, and then life comes at you, right? 
And so then all of a sudden we find ourselves busy and busy and busy. Um, and so many times when we ask each other, uh, we do the, uh, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? How's life? Uh, what is one of our most common responses to that question? It's good, all right? Yeah, a lot of times we say good. Busy, right? <laughs> Anybody guilty of that one? Hey, how's it going? Busy. We've all heard it, right? In fact, I read a story several years ago um, about a man, a man wrote, uh, named William Powers. He wrote this uh, book, and he includes this story of a friend from a non-English-speaking country who moved to the United States. Um, and people would ask this friend, they would say, hey, how are you doing? And she would always reply, oh, busy, busy, very busy. Every time anyone would ask her how she was doing, busy, busy, very busy. And so one day he pulled her aside and he said, hey, are you really like that busy? Just every time anyone asks you how you're doing, you say, oh, just I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm very busy. Uh, why is that? And she got a little bit surprised. She said, isn't that what Americans are supposed to say? <laughs> she just thought that's how we all talk to each other. We just told everyone that we we're busy, whether we we're busy or not. We just said, oh, we're very busy. And so she went around telling everyone how busy she was because she learned from everyone else that we're busy. And so we rush to and from, but uh, can I remind us all that uh, this restlessness that we endure and that we run up against in our culture comes with a price. Uh, this isn't for free. This isn't something that ought to be worshipped and idealized. Uh, because, in fact, uh, right now, as we look into our culture, we find employees that consistently work 11-hour days are two and a half times more likely to face depression than those that work a traditional eight-hour day. Overworking is also linked to an increased risk of heart attack, stroke, lowered immune system health, and even certain types of cancer. And so we find that our bodies, they count the toll. Our bodies keep track of, our minds keep track of, our health understands these things. We don't just get away with these behaviors. Uh, so many times, uh, our families pay the price for this, right? We go out and we work this job that has us going and going, and then we come home, and by the time we come home, we're in zombie mode, right? Anyone else have like a walking dead phase? where you come in the house and you're just, I'm done. I'm done. I don't have time for the kids. I don't have time for my spouse. I don't have anything left because I gave it all to the office. I gave it all to my job. And I have nothing left for, can I remind us all, the responsibility that God placed in our lives before he gave us that job. Okay? But we live in a culture that idealizes these things. We live in a culture that elevates these things and talks of their importance. In fact, I believe this is one of the ways that we can point to our culture and say that our culture is not a gospel-centric or a bibliocentric culture. Uh, when we look uh, to each other, how many times have we heard, uh, when we ask how things are going in life, how many times have we heard the little humble brag, oh, good, but I'm, man, I'm working 70 hours a week. I'm working 90 hours a week. Oh, man, it's just killing me. How many times do we do things like that? We just want people to know how busy we actually are. But listen, one of the commandments is for us to remember the Sabbath day 
the day of rest that God has appointed and ordained to keep it holy. What other Ten Commandments do we uh, brag about breaking? Do we walk around going, you wouldn't believe how many people I killed this week? Um, if the answer is yes, um, let me know. I have a phone call to make. <laughs> we don't walk around bragging about how many convenience stores we robbed. We don't walk around bragging about how many affairs we've had. We don't brag about all of those things. But when it comes to the Sabbath, one of the commandments, we, we like to pat ourselves on the back for how much we have violated the rest that God has placed into our lives on purpose. And so here as we approach Hebrews chapter 4, we have to understand that even as we do these things, uh, we're not, I'm not speaking against, and the Bible speaks uh, positively of work. In fact, work existed before sin came into the world. Adam and Eve worked prior to the fall in the book of Genesis. Work is not a curse. Work is not something that ought to be viewed negatively, but overworking is a problem and is a sin. And so as we look at being busy, busy, we can think of it as a drug that so many of us are addicted to. It gives us that rush. And so many times when the time finally comes to rest, we don't even know what to do with the time that we've ordained for rest. If I had the time, guys, this morning, I would tell you how busy I am. But I don't think work is the problem. I think we are the problem. You see, work is ordained and it's how we provide. But so often it can become our identity. When you're speaking with, uh, I was a college pastor for a few years, and when I would speak to college students, one of the first questions I would ask them, anyone want to guess? What are you studying? What kind of work do you want to do? And then now when we meet people, how do we begin the conversation? If it's a new friend, we say, hey, uh, so what do you do for a living? We identify ourselves with the work that we do. And then so often we just take it all with us because we don't want to let other people down. Does anyone in here enjoy letting other people down? You're just like, it's a high for you. You're just like, ah, I love disappointing people. Good, all right. No, no one wants to admit it if they are. So what does it do? It drives us to answer that email or return that phone call or do that thing, even though we're in a time and a space in our life where our boundaries ought to be in place. And so as we really dig into, as we look at the book of Hebrews chapter number four, there's a question that I want to pose, because I believe even before we jump into this, that Jesus addresses this very clearly in the book of Matthew. Chapter number 11, he says this, Come to me, all that labor or work and are heavy laden. And he says, come to me and I will give you, who wants to fill in the verse? Rest. So here's my question for you this morning as we come into Hebrews chapter number four. If God promises us rest, why are we restless? If God promises us rest, why are we restless? Where's the disconnect? What's not working together the way that it was designed to work? So today, I want to look at, through Hebrews chapter number four, a couple of reasons for our restlessness, 
And then I want to look at some solutions because at the end of the day, there is hope for this. If you just drug yourself in here this morning and you said, man, it's a miracle that I'm even sitting upright. Hey, listen, there's a, there are hopes, there's a cure, uh, there's a solution to these things. And it may be a little more difficult than just saying we're going to take a day off every once in a while because it's probably an issue that goes a little bit deeper into the way that we view ourselves. So as we look at reasons for our restlessness, I want to begin Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 1. The author writes, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For as he said somewhere, spoken of the seventh day this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So what's happening here in the book of Hebrews is the author is going back to some Old Testament passages. He's going back to a couple Old Testament authors as he does so often in this book. And I, wanna, I want you to understand the points of this. And I'm going to explain how we get there. The first reason that this author gives for our restlessness is this. We are restless because we do not trust God. We are restless because we do not trust God. You might say, well, I believe in God. I have faith in God. Great. Uh, one of the most profound statements I believe in all of the scripture is this. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because if we're really, truly honest with ourselves and with each other, one of the greatest reasons for our restlessness is that we do not truly trust God. So the story that he's going back to here comes, it originates in the book of Exodus. We'll get there in a minute. And then later we find it repeated in Psalm 95. And so what we see is that this is a portion of the scripture where he's going back to the people of Israel. The Israelites have been promised by God a land that was their own. A land that they could go to and they could inherit. What they called the promised land. For generations, they've been slaves in Egypt. Moses was brought up as a leader to go lead them out of Egypt into this promised land. And as they were traveling, they came to a place in Exodus chapter number 17 where the people began to murmur and they began to complain against Moses. And they said, Moses, what in the world are you doing? You brought us out here to die in this wilderness. Now, just, just weeks, months before, God had given plagues on Egypt and demonstrated himself in signs. God had parted the Red Sea for the people to walk across and to dry land. God had provided food in the form of manna. But now, all of a sudden, their needs are not met. And they say, God, you just brought us out here to die. And they go and they complain to Moses. And they said, you know what? Slavery wasn't that bad. What? <laughs> 
But that's what they do. They go and they complain because they do not trust God. And so God said, Moses, I need you to come and you just stand before the people and you're going to strike this rock and I'm going to give them water out of this rock. But we also see a condemnation comes because even still they did not, they chose not to believe, not to believe. And because they chose not to believe, what's the promise of God that twice we read here in the first five verses, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. So the promised land is before them, this promise that God has given to them where they can go into this land that it was good and beautiful and wholesome that God had promised to them. But he says, this generation, they're never going to see it because they don't want to trust me. They failed to believe God, so they never saw the promise. You know who inherited the promise? Their children did. Instead of going into this land, the next 40 years, this generation wandered in desert places, wilderness. They were nomads for 40 years as this generation died off, and their kids are the ones that actually got to take the rest that was promised. But why did that all happen? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. You see, unbelief really stems on this question. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Is God working in my life or is he not working in my life? And that's a question that each of us have to ask and answer on our own. You see, if you want to believe God, you have to ask yourself, is God working in my life? And if so, am I ready to let him work? Because if we're not ready, if we're saying, oh, you know what, God, you're working in my life, but I want to do these things instead, can I tell you? You'll never experience rest. You'll never experience rest. You'll experience restlessness. <laughs> and so oftentimes we're restless because we do not trust God. And instead of trusting God, what happens in our life? Look at verse number six. Since therefore... It remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, the words already quoted, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so what did the people do instead of trusting and believing in God for these things? When the spies, there was a time in the book of Numbers uh, that spies were sent into this promised land. And they looked at this land and they beheld all of the beauty and all the wonder of it. And then they said, wow, it's a great land flowing with milk and honey. But there are giants in the land. There, there are those that are too strong for, the land, for us. They're going to overcome us. We're like grasshoppers, insects beside them, and they will squash us if we go into this land. And so what were they dependent on to go into this land? On God and his strength and his might? No. No. And just like these, we are restless because we want to depend on our own works. We want to depend on our own works. And we see this manifested in the day today. 
We see this manifesting and coming out in the way that we interact with each other. This is the back to Egypt arguments of the Israelites. But why is this disobedience? Why is this disobedience? Because what this is, is this is saying, God isn't working, so I need to. God isn't working, so I have to do something. Because he's not doing his job. And so what we find is that our unbelief breeds disobedience. We refuse to rest in what God is doing in our lives because we have to insert ourselves into his work. God, you're not capable or you're choosing not to do these things. And we do this in our everyday life so often, don't we? How many of us are just consumed by worry and fear and sleeplessness? Right? We get anxious and we worry and we stew over and we just, our minds go nonstop. And how many problems has your worrying ever solved? Anybody, you just solve problems by constant worry? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great superpower? <laughs> Probably not because you worry more. Anyways, it never fixes things, does it? But yeah, we do it anyways. We turn to that. Uh, we commit ourselves to this fear and anxiety. Instead of, what's our word today? Rest. And you see, for many of us, this begins even prior to our salvation. You see, there's something inside of all of us that tells us that we have to work to be good enough. And then really we battle and we wrestle with this question. How good is good enough? And can I tell you this morning that you can never be good enough for God? The book of Romans chapter number three tells us that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. Uh, that there are none that do good. There are none that are righteous. No, not one. You and I, we all fail to measure up to God's goodness. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try. But the good news in the middle of all of this is that even though you and I are sinners, the Bible teaches us, Romans chapter number five, that God demonstrated his love for you and for me. And that even though you and I are sinners, Christ died for us. Because you understand who was never a sinner, who never did wrong, who always did the things that God ordained him to do? Jesus. And Jesus was not only man, although he was completely man, but he was also the son of God. And he died in our place. And that's the good news that we call the gospel. The gospel. We can explain it in one sentence. It's this. Jesus in my place. And when we put our faith in Jesus, you know what that gives us the ability to do? Rest. Because my salvation and my standing before God and my value in his sight has nothing to do with the good that I've accomplished. You know why? Because it's not worth talking about. The Bible says that the good things that we do, they're like, they're like filthy rags. These rags are literally uh, things, Isaiah teaches this, uh, these are literally things used to clean up um, like human waste. <laughs> they're vile, vulgar. They're, they're, you, why though? Because listen, it's not about your works or mine. 
It's not about you trying to be good enough for other people to approve of you, to look at you and pat you on the back for doing good and working hard. It's not about even wanting God to say, oh, look, so-and-so, such a good person. No, no, no. That's already been solved through Jesus Christ. We don't have to work for that. But when we impose this on ourselves, we convince ourselves that working hard, it's going to make us significant in God's sight or significant in the sight of others. That is never found in Scripture. That is never found in Scripture. In reality, if anything, it makes us feel important about ourselves, which there's a term for um, self-righteousness. So oftentimes we wrestle with this idea. We wrestle with the question, will God ever give me more than I can handle? Anyone ever heard that question? Anyone ever heard someone well-meaning and maybe we've said these things. Uh, God will never give you more than we can handle. Can I tell you, biblically speaking, I believe that's very false. I believe that's very false. In fact, I'll go as far as to make this statement. The demands of life will always exceed your capacity. The demands of life will always always exceed your capacity. The demands that are put on you and on me are going to go above what you're able to accomplish. And so how do we get things done? How do we survive in this world? Can I tell you? Rest. But Nate, hold on a second. That's really, mm. you're telling me to not worry. It's a rest and that's going to solve the problems in the world. Yes. <laughs> because here's the thing. Jesus tells us in John chapter number 15, he says, without me, you can do nothing, nothing. But you know how we bear fruit in the passage, John chapter number 15? We bear fruit, we accomplish things when we, there's a word that's used, abide in him. That word abide doesn't mean work. That word abide doesn't mean do as hard and be as good as. That word abide means this, to live to dwell, to stay, to remain connected. So you want to accomplish the things that you need to accomplish in this life? Stay connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way that you will be able to rest. And you see, at the end of the day, we have reasons for hope. We have reasons for hope. Watch verse number seven. Let's read this again. Again, he appoints a certain day saying today through David so long afterward. And the words already quoted today. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This was the sin of the Israelites. They hardened their hearts. Their hearts didn't want to receive this word. It would be like a farmer going out to plant seeds uh, in his field. And that, that earth was so rigid, so dry, so difficult that the seeds were not able to penetrate into the soil. Do not do this with your hearts. Watch this in verse number eight. For if Joshua, Joshua was the successor to Moses. So Moses led, and then after Moses died, Joshua was actually the one that led the Israelites into the promised land. So Joshua as a leader was able to succeed where even Moses had failed. But even the rest of the promised land was not the final rest, but it was a picture of a rest that was to come through Jesus. For even if Joshua had given them rest, if he had been able to accomplish all of these things, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did for from his. And so I want you to understand this as clearly as I can communicate it. Rest is promised to those who follow Jesus. Rest is promised to those who follow Jesus. See, repentance is available. He says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You say, I have to be good enough to earn God's approval. I have to work hard enough so that God will look at me and say, they are doing well. They are approved. I look at them and say, oh, I love them because of the things that they do. And our culture will impose those things on us, but God never does. God does not love you because of the things that you do. In fact, while you were a sinner, an enemy of God, he sent his son Jesus to die for you and for me. The things that you do will never change that. He demonstrated his love, even though we are unworthy of it. But what we see is that rest is promised to those who follow after Jesus. You see, Joshua's rest in the promised land wasn't the fulfillment of all of the promise. This was all a foreshadowing. This was all a symbol of the things that would one day come to those who put their faith in Jesus. And multiple times throughout this passage, he uses this uh, statement similar to this. Oh, watch in verse number nine. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So you see a symbol here even built into the creation narrative. When we study uh, creation, in fact, the uh, kids and heritage kids today are they started in Genesis last week, and so they're going through the creation story in Genesis one and two. Uh, for six days, God created the world in Genesis one and two. And what did God do on the seventh day? Kept creating? <laughs> oh, there's still more work to do. What did He do? He rested. He rested from his work. Uh, now, think of this with me. Um, did God rest from his work because he was exhausted from the previous six days? I mean, he did a lot, so we can all understand that it was time to take a break, and God was just worn out, burned a lot of calories creating the world. No. No. He doesn't. He's, his energy is limitless. He doesn't, oh, I'm so tired now. I need a nap after six days of creating everything. Uh, no. So why did he rest? Understand that God rested to demonstrate to you and I, to model for you and I, our own need for rest and rhythms in our own life. Did you know God built a Sabbath into every day of our life? You see, there's a time, um, you may not be aware of this because it's summer, um, but there's a time when the sun goes down. It's dark outside. And when that happens, um, we, most of us are not nocturnal. And so when that happens, we begin to feel drowsy. We begin to feel the need for sleep catching up to us. And most of us sleep every day, right? We need that rest. God built it into us. Because understand, when you close your eyes to sleep at night, there's a big confession that you have to make. And here it is. I am not God. I am not God. 
See, if you are God and you close your eyes to sleep at night, what's happening in the world? We're all in trouble, right? Uh, we are all, we all have a problem. If you are God and you go to sleep for uh, hopefully around eight hours every night, um, that's, that's a big deal. <laughs> Please don't do that if you are God. But you and I close our eyes every night and we say, I am not God. So it is with Sabbath. Now, the Bible is not clear on, uh, for Gentile believers, on a, what the day of rest or the Sabbath day ought to be. But there's a principle that's buried here in this text. We understand that each week as we go through the rhythms of the week, it's God ordained that there be a day that we rest from our labors, that we rest from the things that we are doing. There are six days to work, but there's a day that's devoted to rest. Why? Because you are not God. You can't carry everything that's going on in life. In fact, the demands of life will always exceed your capacity. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you have things that you need to do on your to-do list? All of us do. All of us do. There's no one on the planet that can look around, no adults on the planet that can look around and say, everything on my list is done. No repairs on the house, nothing to do at work, nothing with the kids. I don't have anyone I need to reach out to and write a note. To. I don't. No, we all always have stuff to do, don't we? That doesn't mean that we don't rest, does it? Because can I tell you, that work will be there tomorrow. And if that work won't be there tomorrow, then don't waste your time on it today. But what do we do? We want to go. We want to do. And we want to achieve because we have convinced ourselves that we are God. But even this Sabbath reminds us that we are not. It forces us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And when you learn to trust in him, you will learn to be able to rest. As we wrap up today, I want to look at these last couple of verses. And I want you to understand what's taking place in verses 11 through 13. Because they're profound. They're so encouraging. This is a reason for hope. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest. Okay, that's funny that he says that, right? Can we I just pause? Let's strive. What does it mean to strive? It means to work hard, right? Um, let's strive to enter into rest. So let's work hard to rest. Okay, let's just keep going. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here he's speaking of the faithlessness that the Israelites had demonstrated over and over again. Why? Watch this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Understand what's happening here. Understand what we need to learn about God. We'll break it down here in just a moment. But God sees, knows, and is in control. God sees, 
God knows and is in control. I don't know the things that are going on in your life today, and you don't know the things that are going on in mine. Can we readily admit that? There are people in this room, I don't know your name yet. There are those of you in this room, and I know your name, you know mine, and I I don't know the things you're carrying. I don't know the things that kept you up late this week, the pain, the hurt. I know some things that are going on in the people in this room, but I don't know it all. I don't see every heartache that you have. I couldn't tell you the people in this room that wept over the pain that they were enduring this week. I I don't know. I wasn't there. But can I tell you, I do know someone who was. Even as we look at these verses, we see in verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. And he's saying that to kind of be um, a little hyperbolic. He says, not even a creature There is no insect. There is no small animal that is hidden from his sight. And so if these things are visible to him, how visible are you? He knows what's happening in your heart and in your life today. And in verse 12, he even compares the word of God to a two-edged sword. He says, just like a sword is able to pierce between and discern between and go enter into the flesh, so is the word of God to us. When we open up the word of God together, that word of God pierces us. It goes inside of us. It reads us even as we read the scripture. And so what we find is that God, he is able to see everything that's taking place in your heart and mind. You know, God knows you better than you know you. And at first you might say, well, that's a little bit like intimidating, but can I tell you, that's something that ought to be a source of great peace and watch this rest. Because the things that you worry about, God already knows about. The test you're worried about tomorrow uh, the, the report that you're hearing rumors of downsizing in the company that you're working for, and you don't know if that's going to mean a layoff, if that's going to mean, you don't know what that's going to be. Hey, listen, God knows. Uh, he's not caught off guard. God has never looked at your life and go, oh, I can't believe that just happened. You and I can be surprised all the time, but he never is. And so today, as we look at it, as we examine our own life, understand this. Jesus has come to give us a better rest. Because Jesus has come to say, hey, listen, work to provide for your family, great. Uh, Work to be able to do good and accomplish good and help others, great. Working for the approval of God so that God will view you as significant. Wait a second, hold on. That's already happened through Jesus Christ. You see, our salvation is not of our works so that none of us can brag about it. None of us can boast about it. I can't look to you and say, hey, guys, I'm a Christian, and I've earned God's salvation. Look at me. No, I am unworthy of it, and so are you, but God gave it anyways. It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we remember who God is, we have to understand that God sees, God knows, and God's in control. Nothing has ever happened in your life that was outside of the control of God. You might say, but I've walked through difficult times in my life. Uh, I've hurt, and I've had pain, and I've been scared. Yeah, 
I know. Me too. But that doesn't mean that God is not in control of these things. Because the Bible tells us over and over again that there's going to be difficulty and suffering and heartache in this life. That's not even an option. There's not a check yes or no for suffering. No. We're all in this. But you know what there is, is there's a hope in the middle of all of it. You can't carry everything on your own. You can't just load up these burdens, put them on your back. I am strong enough. I'm good enough. I can accomplish. No, 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 no. You, you can't. You can't. I'm your friend, and I'm here today telling you, you cannot. But Jesus can. And he's called you to rest in him.